welcome to episode 124 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. On today's episode of TBR Podcast, I talked to Dr. Daniel Liddell. I don't know. I, always, I just have a love of academic media and find it to be such an interesting part of both our field, but also other fields, uh, especially as like YouTube has grown. What does that mean to like present academic video, academic information there? And then with podcasting, like how do academics broadly and then also within our field, stuff like Big Rhetorical Podcast, how do we then present those ideas in those kinds of spaces? So um, I don't know. I think I've always been interested in those parts. Um, and since I teach a lot of classes in digital rhetoric and digital media, um, I think podcasting is a really valuable um, place for writing studies to kind of connect to uh, pedagogically. Well, folks, we did it. We survived the Four Seas Conference in Chicago. It was great to be back with so many familiar faces and to meet so many new ones in person for the first time. What had it been? Three years since we were all last together in person? I think, I think I had dinner with a different group of friends every night, which was nice and exhausting. I don't think I have recovered even a week later. I saw my dissertation director, Dr. Erica Sparby, for the first time in over three years. Actually, it was the first time that I'd seen them before, since before I started my dissertation which was at the beginning of COVID in 2020. It was an emotional moment. It was a moment where we were able to hang out and just strip away the dedication and hard work and other bullshit that comes with graduate school and just be people visiting with one another. And it was beautiful. It was wonderful. I didn't get to be hooded or I didn't get to walk because of COVID. So seeing Dr. Sparby again really felt like a conclusion to graduate school. One which has lingered and one which I long for. And I'm sad I didn't get in 2021. And that goes for a lot of us. Alas, on to the interview with Dr. Daniel Liddell, who is also an ISU person like me and Dr. Sparby. Dr. Daniel Liddell is an assistant professor of English at Western Kentucky University, where he teaches courses in visual design, digital rhetoric, and technical writing. His research focuses on the way academic research is reframed for public audiences through digital media in the form of data graphics, YouTube explainer videos, and podcasts. Dan serves as the managing producer of the More Than Memos YouTube channel, which is devoted to highlighting specific research projects and technical communication for a public audience. In his free time, you can find Dan repairing old boomboxes and creating TikToks about the NFL division standings. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Dr. Daniel Liddell. So, Dan, you're an assistant professor of English at Western Kentucky University. Uh, are you from Bowling Green? Or are you from Kentucky? No, I'm not. Uh, I'm actually from uh, the suburbs of Chicago. So the most um, I'm from Naperville, Illinois, to those that know the suburbs. Uh, and the most I like to think of Naperville as uh, the suburb that's achieving maximum villain status in the minds of Chicagoans that when they think of the first suburb that they want to decry as the terrible suburban folk, that Naperville is like the top of their uh, rankings at this point. So uh, that I don't, it's not that I feel that villainy in my heart. Why? That's the only no. distinguishing factor of Naperville at this point. Why? What is this tension between Chicago and Naperville? I think because Naperville is neither uh, rich enough nor interesting enough to merit people's excitement about it and that 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 interest in Naperville uh is frustrating to Chicago and so it embodies the like uh the mooching nature of Chicago culture where it's people um enjoying the Chicago sports teams claiming they're from Chicago in many cases and yet being from a place that is kind of bland in many respects 
Um, I I don't know. I love going back home to Naperville. If any uh, Naper villains are listening to this, um, but it's it's no Chicago. And I also didn't ever. I think growing up there, find it to be the like. Uh, there were many other suburbs that I found to be like the real like rich and giant house uh, places of Chicago. But did you stay close to home for undergraduate? Did you stay in Illinois? Yeah, yeah. So I went to uh, Illinois State uh, University, which was just, yeah, down the down the road. Um, I think it's only like an hour and a half or so. It felt like when yeah. I was going to college, like it was forever. Like it was like going off. I'll never see home again. But like in retrospect, it was just down the road, you know. So folks who listen to the podcast know I went to Illinois State as well. And the thing I remember about Naperville, other than I went to Naperville a couple of times, maybe for like shopping, maybe if that's like a thing to the, I don't know. With my wife, uh, you all can tell how much attention I'm paying. Anyway, um, I can remember this, the the buses at, uh, would come to Illinois State and pick up all these people, this, these undergraduate students, and then bus them back to like the suburbs, to like Naperville. Were you one of these students on these buses? Oh, yeah, I was. Uh, yeah, I think because I didn't have a car for my first three years in uh, Illinois State. So it was just, yeah, lining up for the buses in the cold. I've got a bunch of like me and the bus people and just like giant suitcases and lugging them on there. And they drop us off at like a mall and then we'd all like get back. Yeah, it was a whole a whole process of those things. So, uh, yeah, it was a lot of it was a lot of like bus life, I think, during that time. But uh Yeah. It kind of fits with the whole Midwestern culture thing, I think. Um, let's talk a little bit about Illinois State. Uh, you were there and graduated in 2010 with an English degree. I'm wondering, as you move through your career and attain the MA and the PhD with focuses in rhetoric and composition and technical communication, is this a passion or a subject of interest that was kind of developed or cultivated during your undergraduate experience at ISU? If not, where did your desire to study uh, this subject come from? Yeah, so my uh, origin story in some ways was um, I, my first year at Illinois State, I was doing, I really had an interest, I've always interested in, in stand-up comedy, and so I was doing stand-up uh, in Peoria and around the area in Bloomington Normal and quickly found out in my freshman year that like I am not good at this and that I had a different expectation of uh, what it meant to do stand up because I would want to do like heady, weird stand up uh, and was not good at it. Also, I don't want to paint the picture that like I was great. The audiences <laughs> were wrong. I was I was not good at it. Um, and then my sophomore year was trying to figure out like, well, that's not what I'm doing. So where am I headed? And um, found myself uh, in my first kind of like class in the major uh, with Kyle Jensen, who was a doctoral student there, who now uh, I believe is at North Texas. Um, and he took me aside one day and was like, Dan, uh, I was doing the weirdest stuff I could. I was a, a student that was always like, I'm going to not do the final assignment and make a video instead or I'm going to make a fake magazine instead of an essay. Professors love those students, don't they? <laughs> oh, my God. Not until the rhetoric, the rhetoric people were like, uh, this is very interesting. And you should you should you are this is graduate type stuff that you're doing, which I did not understand. I was like this that I made. Um, uh, so, yeah, so Kyle um, really said, Dan, you have to focus on this. This is an important thing um, and kind of learned through that process that like I had the potential to like read stuff like Foucault and read stuff like that high theory and really um, be able to work uh, at that level. So then I was able to take classes because that was like sophomore year. Um, so then after that point, I was really focusing all through ISU on rhetoric and composition style classes. So um, taking classes with Angela Haas, super critical class uh, that Again, another class that her final project, I did a, a video on Native American stand-up comedy, uh, my first video project I ever did, my first YouTube upload. Um, I took uh, with Amy Robillard, took a class, which was very delightful. Um, and then got to take, they um, very, I was very nervous about this, but they were like, you should take a graduate class as an undergrad and you should take a graduate seminar. And I was like, I don't know if I'm allowed to do this or if I'm ready to do this. 
Um, so I got to take uh, with Julie Jung. Um, I forget the name of the class. I don't know if it was just Burke. Uh, we read a lot of Burke in that class. Um, and then in that class, um, Aaron Clark Frost was just a master's student at that time. Um, and so she was in that class. Um, and then uh, Kelly Sharp Hoskins was, um, uh, what do you call it? Not adjuncting, but like looking in on the class, uh, but for not credit and stuff. So like, like audit, audit, auditing the class. Yeah. So it was a bunch of people. And I was, I think uh, I would not be excited to hear uh, them reflect. I think I was just like, to like a body little undergrad who didn't know what he was talking about, but they were very nice and kind to me. Uh, and everybody at Illinois State was kind of nice and kind to me uh, through that process. So uh, I think it was both thinking a lot about comedy, trying to find out like um, what that meant in terms of rhetoric. I found a lot of connections between rhetoric and comedy. And then I think my biggest influence then from Illinois State probably was that um I don't know. I really, in my the deepest uh, of my heart, it, on the Illinois State Seal, it has this like gladly we learn and teach thing on it. And still to this day, I think I have a lot of that like um, the importance of both like the theory, but also the like thinking about pedagogy in really really deep, uh, substantial ways that I think Illinois State like shoves into your heart in a real as a teacher's school as a normal school um, that kind of still survives uh, to this day in big ways. So yeah, so a lot of that. That's incredible. And, and, you know, the most cliche move possible post dissertation, I actually got that silk tattooed onto my leg because I agree with you. I'm not going to get up and I, I don't think I can maneuver myself to show you on the zoom, but um, I agree with you. Gladly we learn and teach. That is two things. And both of those things must exist together. And we won't turn this into the ISU, you know, <laughs> promotion hour, but that program does that work in a really unique and valuable way for our field. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about stand-up comedy. Um, this is something I didn't know about you, but having met you a couple of times, <laughs> I can definitely see that you could be good at stand-up comedy and maybe at 18 or 19 years old, you haven't hadn't, you know, grown into your, uh, your whole act or whatever. I don't know what I'm talking about, obviously. Uh, but I wonder what, are, who are the in comedic influences on you stand-up comedians and things like that. And then maybe you could shift into a discussion of what are the through lines between rhetoric and comedy that you identify? Uh, so yeah, so the big influences on me, um, I think that uh, uh, the um, alt comedy sector of the late 90s, so I know that I listened to a lot of Patton Oswalt um, and the Feeling Kind of Patton album that he put out, uh, David Cross, um, those types of people. And then later, um, people like Rory Scoville was a big uh, impact on me. Um, while I was at ISU, I know Bo Burnham was putting out his first couple of albums. You could really see the potential there of his, uh, he was doing just songs, but like you could really just see like the intelligence there. And I was telling people for years, I was like, this Bo Burnham, as soon as he stops hating his audiences, he's going to do some good things. And I feel like that that has uh, paid off now. Oh, yeah. Inside and stuff. Yeah. So, um, and then I think that um, some of the connections between, uh, comedy and rhetoric so one of them i think that i wrestle with a lot is i don't know is comedy persuasive and whether comedians view their comedy as persuading the audience to believe something or not um i think one of the things that i really thought about uh both at illinois state and then at clemson uh was a lot of comedians will say i am just a comedian as a way of diffusing their rhetorical potential um so namely like the colbert rapport um, and the Daily Show, they would often say, like, we are just a comedy show. We are not an influential kind of political thing, which obviously is contrary to actually what they did on those shows to me. Um, and I'd say the same thing goes for actual stand-up comedians, that I know that there's a lot of ways of diffusing uh, the rhetorical potential of stand-up and saying, I am not a persuasive actor. I am just entertaining people here. I'm just funny. Um, and I think that there is so much more overlap between those two things um, that I think deserves 
responsibility and attention um, without fully collapsing them, right? That like comedians are not polit politicians that like we should hold them responsible for every single thing. Um, but I still think that there is a sense of responsibility there that uh, is very interesting in like the rhetoric that surrounds stand-up comedy and also thinking of uh, comedians as a form of rhetoricians who like make arguments of a certain kind uh, in those places, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And the reason I ask is because I'm kind of interested in this and I kind of always have been. Uh, if you listen to the earliest episodes of the podcast, even those lost episodes, uh, there's like this really like Mark Marin, what what the fuck feel from his podcast. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of what I was doing and trying to mimic. He's someone that, has, that you know, obviously, obviously has influenced me. Um, but I think that there's other like parallel conversations going on here with uh, specifically like um, these conversations about like rhetoric and comedy kind of could mimic these antic conversations that go back to antiquity about, about you know argument and violence uh which i think could be really interesting to explore further uh but i really like this idea of comedy as persuasion and i wonder if there are also like space and place rhetorics that work in this too when we could look at like a stage or a specific comedy store the comedy store or something like that and how that has influenced you know our culture this is fascinating work i'm going to give you the yeah. last word on it I think the other thing that I think is important that I think uh, I really care about and I think is an interesting piece is that like there are comedy schools like you are taught you go to IO you go to UCB uh, um, and you are like learning a style of writing that like when you go there it is a writing school and a writing class of a certain type and there is like a pedagogy to it and I think what a lot of students find there is like a blending between a formulaic sense of writing and then also a like uh, a eureka like things just kind of creep in in an interesting way and um that's one thing that i think the other through line between like rhetoric and composition and comedy that i think i wish that that i don't know like i would love if i had another if i had another career that i could do you know i think like all academics were like if i had other things uh to just go and like do ethnographies of those comedy writing schools and compare those pedagogies you know between them i think is just so i just imagine like that's in my dreamy dreams of scholarship of things that are just uh very very cool so yeah so there's just so many through lines and i just love it as a thing and i've always been a big fan so yeah from isu you moved on to clemson to get your master's degree where you worked with folks like scott barnett Cynthia haynes and then on to Purdue uh, for the PhD, which you uh, received in 2018. Your dissertation was titled Beyond Animation Toward a Rhetoric of Motion Design for Technical and Professional Writing. And you worked with, oh, listen to this committee, folks, Patricia Sullivan, Michael Salvo, Thomas Rickert, and Samantha Blackman. I guess that's why you go to Purdue right there, I think. Um, tell a, a humble smile from Daniel. Um, tell, a little, tell us a little bit about your dissertation project. How did it come? Understanding and the audience obviously understands it was a couple of years ago, a few years ago, really pre-pandemic. But what was uh, the genesis of that project and what were some of its outcomes and purposes? Yeah, yeah. so I think... Um... While I was at, so the big turn between uh, that time with the thinking about comedy is maybe the focus and thinking about animation was while I was at uh, Clemson, I got uh, the opportunity to take uh, more classes where I learned video production, learned a lot of Adobe stuff, really got some of those uh, design chops and thinking about design as a part of professional writing. Um, and then at Purdue, I was working on uh, videos and video production for the Purdue Owl. So during that time, um, I was really thinking about like what makes a video in terms of YouTube persuasive and interesting and what do these genres kind of look like. Um, and one of the things that I was kind of consistently working on were either animations for that video or working in After Effects to kind of create title slides, graphics, um, really small moments that can kind of break away from the talking heads of the video into other types of displays and other types of information. So. Um, but when I looked at the scholarship in, um, rhetoric and composition about animation, it was either kind of talking about flash, uh, which was important and foundational to how we understand the rhetoric of, um, animated visuals, 
but also a lot of kind of um let's say early 2000s web angst about animated gifs and animated graphics um and frustrations about their nature as kind of like inherently distracting um so a lot of what i was talking about in my dissertation was trying to um cut into like what does it mean to not talk about it as animation per se but as kind of just motion and how motion is designed in a particular capacity um both for video production and how it gets used in youtube um but also like there are very very small animations that are on phone inter interfaces and like within our everyday tasks that i think we're less aware of because they're so small and subtle and well built into the interfaces we use um, so I was trying to do a couple of things in that dissertation. One, just make an argument for uh, the need for animation and the value of it in the in the modern capacity outside of kind of that uh, early 2000s -y, um, kind of like uh, GIF way. Um, but also I was trying to develop some some pedagogical apparatus for kind of how can we start to teach that in the classroom so that if, uh, for example, um, those of us that teach Canva as a design tool, there are animation tools galore within there, both for videos and for social media graphics. Um, and if you are teaching students, not only layout and color and typography, but like the movement of that, what can you tell them about like what makes good movement and what movement can kind of accomplish within those graphics, right? Um, so that was really the focus of the dissertation was a lot of trying to like flesh out that work um, and trying to develop kind of like a pedagogical sense and a, and a way of uh, languaging it or like design principles for it that would make sense um, within the field to a certain capacity. When you were chatting, I was thinking the first thing I was thinking was um, interface design. When you mentioned small mundane, maybe is that an appropriate word? Yeah, Animations. Yeah. Give, give us an example, maybe on our phones, of what you're talking about here. So I think the one that we encounter the most and is the most visible is the loading screen animation that every app, when you open it, gives you some type of like rotating blah, 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 yada, yada. Um, and we're familiar, those that are Mac users, I think you have a the colored wheel that does when you, from, from the past. Um, and every many apps now include that as well, just to give the user a sense of like, the computer is processing something. The computer is thinking. Don't feel like the app isn't working at this point. Um, but on top of that, um, when you open a new window, there will be kind of like a slight, um, what you can call an ease between the small version of the window and the large version of the window. Like it doesn't automatically appear in its, in its like it doesn't flash on the screen um, immediately as its largest sense, but kind of like gradually like grows into it to give the user a sense of where that thing came from so that if they want to minimize it they can also kind of like mentally know where is that thing going to so um as the interfaces get more complicated um and as like individual apps have their own interfaces within the interface so like we got the interface of the phone about the interface of the app um there's a lot of potential for those uh um animations to kind of drive attention um, to give a sense of space and place within those interfaces to like where things are, where they're located, um, but also emotion. There's like whimsical animations and like serious animations and like slow fades out of stuff that like do give almost that same sense of style and emotion that we think of with typography, right? Where it's like, oh, there's this typeface that gives um, emotion and personality in this sense that um, at times we can overdo and can be way, way too much. Um, but even something like Times Roman has a personality in the same way that like a slow fade of a graphic within your phone interface also has a personality. Absolutely. This is fascinating. I have taught myself recently um, Sling TV. I don't know if you have Sling TV, but um, there's this channel like called the Pet Collective and I turn it on for the dogs and mute it when I leave the house. And it's honestly, it's the most brilliant television channel ever, ever created. It's just like YouTube videos of animals. And like, who's not going to watch that? You know what yeah. I mean? So when I turn on Sling, I've caught myself recently, like waiting for this, like the radar thing on the load screen to like start, like I'm waiting for it, you know, anticipating. It. I know it's going to come on, right? I know, but like, I want to see it. I think that that's kind of 
a part of this, right? I don't know if it's anything you argued, but I think there's an anticipation to see it load that's really interesting. Yeah, and there's a whole, uh, one of the weird things uh, that I learned about in that process was that um, the difference between the load bar or those loading screens and the actuality of how far the computer is in the process, or sometimes it would like the loading bar would be like, we're done with this far in the process, but actually it was nowhere near done with the process and was just like goading you along with like, I'm still working here, buddy. Um, but was doing those things, which makes sense because the computer's not working at like a, a standard rate constantly, but it's trying to convince you that it is, um, yeah, because he doesn't want you to close the app after a half a second when it's when it, nothing has has popped up yet, you know. So um, yes, um, comedy, animation. I'm seeing some thematic similarities here in your interests. I wonder where podcasts uh, fit into that. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that I. Um, just love, I don't know, I always, I just have a love of academic media and find it to be such an interesting part of both our field, but also other fields, uh, especially as like YouTube has grown. What does that mean to like present academic video, academic information there? And then with podcasting, like how do academics broadly and then also within our field, stuff like big rhetorical podcast, how do we then present those ideas in those kinds of spaces? So um, I don't know, I think I've always been interested in those parts. Um, and since I teach a lot of classes in digital rhetoric and digital media, um, I think podcasting is a really valuable um, place for writing studies to kind of connect to uh, pedagogically. So um, so a couple so a couple of years ago, I've tried podcasting um, in my classes a couple of times and have okay, cool. have uh, uh, it's gone well sometimes and has gone less well other times, um, which is what you and I talked about. same the computers and writing workshop uh, where we met. Um, uh, where you did del deliver delightful stuff about podcasts and activism and how to like condition those stuff. And it was very uh, useful to that. You're kind. Uh, and so. Um, so what podcast do you listen to? Oh my God. So some of the favorites. Yeah. So I am a law, my biggest, I don't not cred, but like I am a comedy. Bang Bang is my uh, comedy. Like, like I started, uh, I remember walking home from classes at Illinois State listening to like episode five of Comedy Bang Bang. Um, and I went to the first live Comedy Bang Bang show. Wow, no one, you're like a... Yeah, no one knew what was a live comedy, what was a live podcast like? And we were all like, it was a bunch of like bearded white bros standing in a bar in Chicago. Like, I don't know, I think they're going to get on stage and do... Like it was a very early time in what live podcasting meant. It's like um, the big bang of the podcast, more than likely, right? A bunch yeah. of bearded white dudes in Chicago talking about audio media. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so comedy bang bang is like my heart in like the the central place. Uh, but I listen to a lot of uh, football podcasts and um, sports podcasts as like a guilty pleasure, or uh, a lot of like reality. I less I watch The Bachelor, so I listen to a lot of Bachelor recap podcasts. I know all about this. I have a colleague who like her, Dr. Kellen Lowe is amazing. Uh, I don't know if you know Dr. Lowe, but uh, for her birthday, I'm going to out her here. She'll probably have my, have my neck for her birthday. We went to her home and she delivered a multi slide, multi, multi slide PowerPoint presentation about the bachelor and rhetorical theory and a part of this presentation was the large and growing community of bachelor related podcasts. Wow. That's so cool. So yeah. Would, so, you, yeah. Yeah. So that, I mean that I, that I would go, I would, uh, yeah, I'd be down to see that uh, presentation. Sounds like a great, wonderful talk. She set a really high bar for the rest of the graduate faculty to give their PowerPoint presentations on their birthdays. That's for sure. I bet. So, I bet. So one of the um, interests that we have is uh, intersecting interests is, is podcasts. Indeed, uh, you came to that workshop at Computers and Writing, and then I came to your presentation on podcasts. And as I was telling you earlier, uh, this is a, a presentation that I think about often um, because it was brilliant. Uh, the methods that you used to investigate were just some of the most cutting 
cutting edge work about how we can analyze podcasts in this podcaster's opinion. So I, instead of me trying to uh, recapture for the audience what that presentation was about at Computers and Writing, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about uh, what your presentation was about. How did you come up with this idea, right? And then also the methods. Um, I think that's incredibly important for us to get a clear understanding of the methods. Um, let me let you talk because I feel like I'm talking a lot. You're not. You're you're great, Charles. Um, so the um, so the the genesis of the project, which I think is helpful for getting there. Um, I uh, a couple of my uh, grad school chums, as grad school chums tend to do, we kind of got together and and uh, Jeff Girding, uh, who has done a lot of work on podcast, very great uh, uh, colleague and professional. He was like, "Hey, do you guys want to just like?" start reading the current scholarship about podcasting and just like think about it and kind of talk about it every once in a while. And I was like, yeah, uh, I'm trying to get better at teaching it. I would love to do that. So uh, we kind of all were meeting, uh, doing kind of like a writing group and thinking about podcasts. And one of the things that we kept coming around to was the interest in podcasting and social justice and the way that um, there's so much great scholarship about kind of like that particular angle of podcasting, how it could be used in the classroom, how certain podcasts and podcasting uh, production methods can be used for social justice. Um, and I, I think along the way was trying to think about like, I don't know, do the the contradiction uh, element, uh, which was, I don't know, our podcasts also used for hate and for problematic viewpoints uh yeah. and podcasting can't be just like a panacea of like every and then podcasting came and turned out every we only highlighted the voices we wanted to highlight you know so um so i was i was interested in that and uh then i think a couple months into that the uh, splc the southern poverty law center released a report about um, how podcasting was one of the primary ways that people were quote unquote red pilled. So the way that they were kind of like pushed into alt-right communities. Um, and I don't think that this comes as a surprise to people um, given the um, the widespread kind of like known um, uh, Jordan Peterson podcast. And then also a lot of discussions about misinformation in the Joe Rogan podcast. Um, but this, the podcast that, um, the SPLC focused on were like farther than that, like specifically white nationalist or Christian nationalist podcasts, podcasts that actively said we are um, we are nationalist podcasts, like we are uh, we are the alt right to a certain capacity. So, um, so I wanted to investigate those, and I wanted to say like, well, what can we, what can rhetoric offer this sample of podcasts, and how can we kind of other than just making the argument like. Hey, there's there's uh, podcasts of hate as well as podcasts that are, are the kind of things we want to focus on. Um, what what other methods can we kind of use to look at those podcasts, right? So, um, so I was looking around for like what I don't know. How do I want to investigate this, and what's the interesting part of it? And and um, so what I ended up the the article that I really was jumping off of, and the one that I found really useful um, was. Uh, Abigail Lamke's um, was an article about delivery and sonic delivery and sonic rhetorics um, in Kairos. Um, and it's a great article because for, for my, uh, what I was interested in was um, having something that was like replicable, um, right? So something that's like aggregable, data-driven, something that we could like take from one place and put it, put it on another set of podcasts and kind of compare that data. Um so the method is to look at two different aspects of delivery. So one aspect is what she calls vocal presence. Um, so that is just literally how much is the host of the podcast talking? So you kind of just measure um, how much is the guest talking? How much is the host talking? And that kind of just tells you a lot about um, how the host is positioning themselves within the podcast. So is it the hosts? Yeah, go for it, Charles. The measurement is time. I just want... To, to throw that in there so that people understand that part, right? Yes. yes. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Um, so you're just kind of measuring like, here's the amount of time that the host was speaking out of the total amount of time in the podcast. Um, and what what uh, Lamke uses that to say is almost just like, here's how much the, the 
host is like the center point of the podcast, right? So even for something like Car Talk um, or uh, a podcast like Serial, like is the po- the host like the highlighted person? So, um, and then that is charted alongside another aspect of delivery, uh, which she called vocal engagement. So um, that kind of is how much is the host um, excitable and um, trying to be very, maybe not bombastic or loud necessarily, but trying to be energetic um, versus we could say like a cool, calm delivery, like someone that is trying to put on the auspices of objectivity um, in their podcast, we could say. So uh, for a 99% of Invisible, right, I would not say Roman Mars, though a very engaging podcast host, I would not say Roman Mars is necessarily like bombastic and in your face with his tone or presence in that way. So the thing to measure there is kind of a, um, I think it's like a scale of one to 10 of how much they are uh, presenting that kind of like um, either objective and distanced um, uh, aesthetic or a kind of very present and energetic uh, way. Um, But without a, it's not to say one is better or worse, but just as a metric that you can then look at after the fact. So, so I have a couple of questions about doing this work. Um, first question is, how did you take care of yourself doing this work? What I mean is that you obviously were listening to hours and hours and hours of white nationalist podcasts. So how did you take care of yourself, your mental well-being while doing this project? It's a good question. Cause yeah, it was a, uh, I think it was like 81 hours of podcasts. I just listened to three. It was just three episodes of the nine or 11 podcasts or so, but every episode is like two and a half hours long. Cause that's how they live their lives. Um, so they're just like epically long podcasts. Um, and I think that, so there were two ways. I think one trying to like do it in, in sprints. Cause I don't, I, for me, you really have a choice of, do you do it every single day and kind of divide it into tiny chunks or do you try and get it out of the way? For me, it was a get it out of the way. Just try to like, sit and listen um, and have kind of my timer going. So I could say, here's the host talking, here's the host not talking um, for the entirety of the time. So I spent, I think just like, I don't know, just uh, probably like six hours uh, for a couple of weeks. I would do just six hours a day and do like two or three podcast episodes in a row and just sit there and time it and take some notes. Um, but the other thing is I think um, as a, as a, a, a white guy, I think it allowed me to like have a, a, a distance at it that when they were critiquing things that they weren't shooting directly at me personally. And so um, they were saying just hateful, terrible things that I think it made it from the place of privilege of being just like a cishet white guy allows me to then, uh, uh, I don't know, just like constantly listen to that stuff Um without a lot of that emotional just harm and trauma that I I would imagine uh, uh, could be very painful for, and I don't know, was very painful in a lot of ways uh, to listen to because it just was very, um, the argumentation was often really like gross um, and strange. And, uh, but yeah, so yeah, trying to sprint through it and then also uh, trying to, to, I don't know, just... uh, uh, live through that process. Uh, social media like Twitter and Facebook, uh, YouTube with I don't know conspiracy videos like Alex Jones, etc. Throughout the last twenty years, um, conservative propagandists have figured out how to use these different media and different platforms to get their message to to wider audiences i would argue and i might be in the minority here i would argue that they're way better at it than than the left than the left side they're like they're you're shaking your head vigorously some engagement let me hear you agree with yeah yeah so i would say that they're 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 very good at it um and very good at it uh for a lot of different reasons but um I think one thing is they are just able to just like, I don't know, put out so much content uh, that it's it becomes a lot. I think they're also very good at the 
Um, one of the things I talked about in my conference presentation is that the legacy of talk radio as a political arm, I think, survives into the podcast and the YouTube and the Twitter uh, resources in a particular way. Um, not to say that there aren't conspiracies on the left or that like there aren't those arms, but um, when you look at a lot of the types of podcasts, I think that we look to is like, oh, here's a, a, a left argument. Sometimes it'll be like, produced stories or like narratives or things that are like put together that take time and energy to tell those stories. Whereas the, I can tell you, like, it's just like a fire hose for those ones. The the ones I was looking at on the right, where it's just constant things coming out, hard to track any one idea um, as those kind of like things came out um, uh, along the way. So just very, that infrastructure and that thought process and that, like the, the feel of it, I think is kind of like, in the like emotional infrastructure of society to have that uh, uh, as a part of conservative radio through lined through what we're seeing today. That's, that's a, that's fascinating answer. And I think you're really onto something because my next question was going to be, you know, why has the podcast become such um, a a genre that works to deliver the red pill, you know? Uh, And I think what you described this building on talk radio, the Rush Limbaugh's, uh, I don't know if Bill O'Reilly was more of a TV person than a radio person, but like these blowhard voices, right? That they're, their their greatest asset for their job is their vocal engagement, right? Mm-hmm. Like a hundred percent. This is fascinating. And I think there's more to this conversation as well. Yeah. And uh, one of the important things I think just to note about it is that um, the fine, one of the findings is that like a lot of them were not as bombastic as we like to think that they were like a lot of them were very calm and collected in a way that I think was very surprising to some of the people in the audience there that it wasn't uh, as as Fox Newsy as it was um, very like dry in a way to seem very objective to those listeners. So uh, anyway, so. What would a pro- what would replicating this project in the field of rhetoric and composition, looking at podcasts like TC Talk and Pedagog and Rhetoricity and the Big Rhetorical Podcast and Chiroticast? I'm going to name them all if you just let me keep going. Right? <laughs> uh, we've grown. So we are a community of, and there is sustainability here, and it's like a real mm-hmm. thing now. So, what would replicating this project? with the podcast and rhetoric composition, what would be the value there? What do you maybe think some of the findings would be? I'm not sure really what I'm asking more than I think it would be an interesting project to do. I think it would be fascinating too. I think that the the most interesting thing would be to um, kind of note what how, how are different podcasts oriented in terms of that vocal presence, right? So if we just look at the timing of just how much is the host talking versus how much is the guest talking, um, really just taking note of what is that, uh, what is the ballpark that people tend to um, be in? And then also to kind of think about alternate possibilities of engagement, right? So I think um, the, the danger of what not to do would to be like, oh, it turns out this one podcast host is talking too much and they're not letting their guests speak or something like that. Um, but instead to say, um, is what is the the type of podcast that that different hosts like yourself are intending to produce, right? What is the, the goal of that balance that different hosts are aiming for? And is there a place for, like, let's say we uh, did that study and found that most of the podcasts um, don't have a lot of vocal presence from the host, for example, like that it is a lot of the guests talking. We could say like, well, what what would be the value of having a very host-focused podcast, right, that has less of that guest engagement that is kind of like a, a more singular voice in the field? Um, and why don't we have that? And do we... Uh, do we want that? And the answer might be no. Uh, but it's really, I think, that type of um, reflection on what types of podcasts exist. Um, is there a range of different styles of podcasts in the field and ways of presenting arguments about rhetoric and composition in the field? Um, and are there alternate possibilities and niches uh, and types uh, that we can kind of like look to in the future, um, either as things that individual podcasts can try or that new creators in the future can kind of look to and say, I want to do this other style um, that isn't necessarily being tried 
um, as much. We have podcasts, uh, we have documentary films, uh, and we have YouTube videos, uh, all supporting and serving the field of rhetoric and composition. Uh, you produce More Than Memos, uh, which is a YouTube channel. What is More Than Memos and how did it come to be? Yeah, so um, More Than Memos started as um, the editors of the many of the journals in technical and professional communication coming together and saying, we need more social media, we need more kind of like media presence of technical communication um, online. And they were looking specifically at YouTube. And um, as uh, several of the editors told me, they were looking at the possibilities of doing some of that work independently and kind of like starting a YouTube channel or starting some some uh, specific ones for their individual journals and kind of said, can we kind of collapse that to have uh, a single channel that can kind of reflect some of that work um, in the field? So they put out a call um, I was the person that uh, they uh, turned to, and uh, as well as a, a a body band of graduate students. Shout out to um, everyone on my team; they are are delightful and wonderful folk. Um, and said, "Hey, uh, we don't know very much about starting a YouTube channel. We would like you to try try and make one." Um, so what that's become is uh, um, so more than memos is a place to both kind of like highlight recent scholarship in technical communication, but also kind of broadcasted out to audiences that may not be as connected to the field. Um, so to me, in my mind, that includes both um, academics who do not, you know, follow every single journal issue that comes out or that don't um, uh, uh, get read, you know, uh, as, as broadly through every single issue. Um, graduate students and undergraduates who are interested in technical communication and are saying like, what is this field? What is this thing that I'm kind of entering into? Um, but also, in my mind, just a place for people who want to nerd out about the topic. Like, I really think that broadly, both for RetComp and for TechCom and professional writing, there are just cool stories in our scholarship that are worth telling and that are very interesting. And not every 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 article is a story like that. And not every article is going to appeal to every audience. But I think there are those stories. And I find it such an interesting and vibrant field. And that's really my goal is to try and uh, uh, find those stories that we can kind of put into that video format uh, to reach some of those different audiences in, in new ways. How are you all growing at More Than Memos in the, in the future? What's your plan for growth and expansion? It's a great question. So we are um, trying to, or right now we are, uh, we're about to put out a call for new, um, uh, graduate students, new content creators to come work on the channel. So that is both people that want to do the front end. So, uh, uh, for actually interviewing academics. So being the, like the face on screen talent for those things, thinking of interview questions, um, but also people that want to learn the video editing process, um, which as the, my, uh, team will tell you is very is complex and difficult to do remotely, um, but which I am very dedicated to training graduate students to learn how to do and to work on those processes, to learn Adobe Premiere Pro, to learn After Effects, to learn kind of like the production cycle of YouTube videos on a channel um, that we're hoping to, yeah, grow the team coming up. Um, so yeah, so if you have graduate students that really love YouTube, um, if you... Uh, are a graduate student yourself and you're interested in producing YouTube videos, or if you just want to, um, you know, dabble and try these things out and meet some other academics in the field. Um, it's really, I think, a, a, a wonderful, inviting place uh, and a great place to kind of just be in touch with that current scholarship um, in a deeper way. Yeah. So uh, you can find us on uh, YouTube uh, by searching more than memos, but also uh, on Twitter, Facebook, uh, and Instagram. So if you just uh, search more than memos. Um, the SEO should the SEO gods should work in our favor, uh, and you should be able to find us that way um, fairly easily. So come watch our videos. We're very excited about them. Uh, we put a lot of work into them, and I think it really uh, displays some of the great work that's kind of coming out uh, in technical communication today. Would you ever consider 
delivering a conference presentation in the form of a comedy routine. Ooh, you know, some people would say, Charles, that, that is the only way I can can give a conference presentation. Uh, my fellow faculty here uh, often, after I'm being observed, make fun of me where they are not make fun of me, but will be like, this is too not too comedic, but it's very, uh, very comedic in its in its styles and its ways. Um, but uh, I, I yeah, it would be very, I'd be I've done something like that when I was uh, the MC of the Purdue talent show. So I would do something that was like uh, to that capacity uh, many a time. So I'd be happy to do it. I'm not saying it would be good. Like I said, as I've established before, Charles, I am not claiming myself to be a good comedian, but um, I do enjoy comedy and enjoy the comedy writing process. Dan, this has been an exceptional hour to chat with you. I enjoyed it so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining the Big Rhetorical Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's always, you know, as a as an ISU alum, I had no idea that you went all the way to the tattoo level, which jealous very much. Um, and it's just a delight to be on here uh, and to talk to you. Thanks for having me. with Dr. Daniel Liddell. As you heard, I met Dan last year at Computers and Writing Conference at East Carolina, and I've been a big fan ever since. His work with podcasting, analyzing podcasts, that's exceptional. We need more work like that. And his hand in developing more than memos has been so important as the field tries innovative ways to reach public audiences through different digital genres. It's just great work. I hope you'll be back next week because I'll be here with another new interview. Until then, always be listening rhetorically. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media. Exalt Digital Media, not for profit. The Big Rhetorical Podcast was recorded on the land of many native nations, past and present. These original homelands are territories of indigenous peoples who are largely dispossessed and removed. We specifically acknowledge the traditional stewardship of this land by the Wichita, Kikapu, and Tawakoni peoples. Mm-hmm.